This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Katie Faust is the founder and director of the children's rights organization, Them Before Us, which is dedicated to defending children's rights around the world. Mrs. Faust is also a contributor for the Federalist magazine. She's written numerous articles at outlets like The Public Discourse and The Washington Examiner. Her recent book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, addresses the need for strong families and the presence of both parents, father and mother, for child development and is the topic of our conversation today. Katie Faust, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I've been talking about children's rights for a couple of years, and I'm like, any day now, any day, the Baptists are going to find me, and they finally have. So it's a joy to be with you. Yeah. Some of us have been uh, uh, talking about your book for some time, and it's great to have a conversation with you. And, uh, you know, the whole theme of your book is the idea of them before us, meaning children before adults. Uh, But uh, the reason I want to really start in another place is because I think that's essential to uh, making this conversation most fruitful. So why don't you tell us before the book uh, how you came to the uh, convictions and uh, the, the, the passion to write such a book and to make such arguments? Yeah, well, 10 years ago, I wasn't doing any of this. Uh, I was a non-confrontational pastor's wife. Uh, My husband's a pastor here in Seattle. We had just come home from China after adopting our youngest child. And um, this wasn't on my radar. I personally, on the spectrum of the grace giver, truth teller, I am much more of a grace giver. I don't like to make waves. I don't like to confront. I don't like to lose friends. Uh, But what kind of crossed the line for me was when Obama evolved on the topic of marriage in 2012. Um, that, That is when I heard a huge shift in the public narrative around gay marriage, where it felt to me like now that we have the president, we can call everybody that disagrees with us bigots. And I also started to hear this argument that um, kids don't need moms and dads, right? That kids with two moms or two dads, they love it. Now, both of those were problematic for me. The first, that support for traditional natural marriage was grounded upon Um, bigotry, phobia, animus towards gay people, that's a problem because my mom's been in a relationship with her partner for more than 30 years. And I pray that I am on the top two list of people that love them, that when they think about people that love them, that that I make the list. Um, The other aspect of kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads, what that means is kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. That's really what they're saying here, right? Right, Whenever you're looking at a picture of a kid with two dads, you're looking at a child who has lost their mother. And my husband and I had worked in youth ministry for decades, and I had never met a kid who lost their mom or dad, who at minimum wasn't curious, but very often this resulted in a lifelong wound, right? This was the thing that had them up in the middle of the night at the church lock-in crying when everybody else is asleep on the gym floor, talking about, where's my dad? Why doesn't my mother love me? You know, why did she leave? Like, these are the deepest wounds. And now that I run this nonprofit and I gather the stories of even adult children, I still have 50-year-old men who will share their story with me in tears because they desperately miss 
the relationship with the father that they never knew. So this idea that you can swap out parents and kids are going to be just fine. That was really what crossed the line for me. And I said, I have to start speaking up. Somebody has to say that mothers and fathers are not optional in the life of a child. And so that's what in essence uh, got me started on this path. Well, someone who's been dealing with these issues for decades, I simply want to have a slight disagreement with you. And uh, uh, I say that in a friendly way, uh, because uh, at least a part of how you introduced this would kind of credit to President Obama, uh, prophetic leadership on the issue of uh, same-sex marriage, according to his worldview, when the reality is he was uh, for same-sex marriage before he was against it and then for it again. And, uh, and he was for it when he was running for the, uh, the, the state Senate there in Illinois, then against it mm-hmm. when he ran for president mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and the United States Senate, of course. He was against it when he ran for his first term as president and for it right. the second term. And you remember yeah. there was a bit of a soap opera involving then Vice President Joe Biden, supposedly just accidentally, you know, uh, uh, making a statement that President Obama mm-hmm. had to come back on. But uh, even David Axelrod and others in the administration, you know, point out that, that uh, President Obama held back on same-sex marriage in, in, uh, the, uh, in 2008. And then because of the societal shifts that had taken place between 2008 and 2012, you know, he came out swinging for same-sex marriage uh, in 2012. But now, now the culture's moved so fast in that direction that uh, there are people in the Democratic Party who think that uh, being for same-sex marriage after you were against it means that you're you're just one of those. And so it is it is very interesting to see what happened here. But I think I think you agree with this. The problem is actually a lot deeper because we can't actually just blame President Obama for same sex marriage. We can blame him for political hypocrisy and uh, and progressivist uh, uh, agendas. But the reality is that uh, it's even scarier to realize he didn't come out and endorse same sex marriage until he thought it was politically safe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just feel like that's probably been the reason why we've seen such a shift is because it has less to do with the arguments, obviously, because the arguments, the reality, the natural law, um, even the five major religions of the world are on our side when it comes to this. None of that has changed. What has changed is social acceptance and social pressure. And we've seen that those are tools wielded by the left very powerfully, that the um, the thought of social exclusion, ostracizing from your peer group or your friend group, it is enough to drastically swing people's opinion in the matter of years, for sure. So how did you come to write this book? In other words, here you were, the pastor's wife, you, uh, you, you'd, you'd rather be non-confrontational than confrontational, but uh, you know, this is a confrontational book. So you, you haven't only crossed yeah. some Rubicon somewhere. Yeah. Uh, well, I started anonymous blogging because I'm a chicken because I know what these people will do to you. Um, So I hid for a while and God was actually very gracious to allow me to forge some of these arguments and figure out some areas of weakness or where I needed to refine what I, and actually like point out some blind spots in relative obscurity. But then uh, in 2014, I was outed by a loving and tolerant blogger who found my IP address, realized my husband was a pastor, um, found our church, and then doxed the members of my church to try to silence me. So, it, you know, right out of the bat, um, you know, I was kind of pushed. I, I didn't choose to go public, but I went public. Um, and under the circumstances of um, we're going to hurt the people that you love um, if you keep this up. And at some point, I think all of us have to figure out, like, is this where I stop? 
or do I keep going? And thankfully I had good men, my husband and the leaders of this church behind me who were like, uh, let me check you keep going, right? Don't let this guy push you around or that. So that's how it started. Um, and then in 2018, I started the nonprofit then before us because I realized we need to have a place where we put all these stories, like all of these kids with LGBT parents, especially, you know, we would find each other and we'd share stories privately, but there really needed to be a place where the world could hear the stories of kids who experienced mother loss and father loss, look them in the eye and then say, does love make a family? Are the, are the kids happy if the adults are happy? Like really look at what some of these ideas and the impact they've had on the life, the real life aspect, development, identity of children. Look those kids in the face and say, yeah, family re redefinition, let's do this. Uh, the other reason I started the nonprofit is because on policy matters, Nobody, nobody considers the rights of the child, right? It's always, the kids will be included in the conversation if they validate and support what the adults already want. But the reality is that kids actually long to be known and loved by the two people responsible for their existence. Um, they have a right, according to natural law, according to the most widely ratified treaty on the planet, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, children have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father. Um, and as we go through extensively in the book, um, children's development and their biological identity and their safety are maximized when they're raised by those two adults responsible for their existence. So that aspect of these conversations, whether it's two moms on a birth certificate or the definition of marriage or possibility of rolling back no-fault divorce or, or passing commercial surrogacy laws, um, all of those conversations happened without the presence and the voice and the representation of children's fundamental rights to their mother and father. So that's another thing that we're trying to do is just whether it's a letter to a legislature, whether it's presenting at a family structure conference in Albania, whether it's testifying to uh, Senate committees, we want them to consider the child first. We first want everyone to ask, what about the kid? And then move on to what the adults want. But first we have to say, to what do children have a natural right and then form our personal and policy decisions based on those fundamental rights. But there are some big assumptions in there. And so I want to press you on some issues for some good conversation. N number one, why frame these issues in terms of rights, uh, whether held by children or anyone else? Why, why what uh, Harvard law professor Mary Ann Glendon would call rights talk? Why, why, why is mm. that the talk we're talking rights? Well, number one, because they actually have a right. And I understand actually, you know, you and other conservatives are the only people that ask me this question, mm -hmm. right? Because um, as one friend over in Europe, like, over that does EU politics, he's like, everything's a right. And when everything's a right, nothing's a right. Like stop Absolutely. with the rights talk, right? Um, and that's true. That's a problem. But children actually do have natural rights. And we've seen that leveled very effectively in the fight against abortion. We understand that children have a natural right to life, regardless of what civil law says. Children have, whether or not it's recognized by government, whether or not it's recognized by culture, children have a natural right to life. And we build that case based on natural law, biological reality, and common sense. So you can use those same metrics to establish that children have a right to their mother and father. And I understand um, the hesitation to use that term when it comes to children's rights, because the other side, the left has so co-opted and distorted and adulterated that term. Yeah, I didn't say right? it's the they wrong use... way to do it. I ask you why you chose it. Uh, 
I actually yeah. think, I, I think, look, I mean, this is a good deal of my personal theological, ethical, cultural work is defending the notion of rights uh, within mm -hmm. a, a natural uh, and creation order uh, worldview. Uh, I mean, we, we have to talk about rights. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, we don't even know what we're talking about uh, when we say that uh, that we should have the right to free speech or to freedom of religion or the, even a right to life. So we have to yeah. use the language. But uh, conservatives are, I think, uh, rightly, quite instinctively and intuitionally concerned that with the proliferation of so-called rights in the 20th century and with the complete perversion of the rights talk in the 21st century, uh, I, I will say this, I think it's clever. And I, I mean that in the best sense of the word. I think it's clever to rephrase this in terms of children's rights. But uh, you are stepping into an argument. And uh, I mean, you found that out already. Well, and so we argue based on children's natural rights because it's true, but also because it's it's tactically effective, right? They frame all of their arguments in terms of rights, a right to housing, a right to government funded birth control, right? And it seems like on the other side of the aisle, anything an adult really, really wants is framed as a right. Um, and so I think that we need to recapture what how to define and advocate for natural rights. So we are seeking to do that too. But tactically, I do think this is the way we need to take to, this is the tact we need to take. Yeah, I, I will say I'm a little less sanguine than you are about the power and traction of, of these arguments. I will say the natural law arguments are completely compelling uh, to the people for whom they're compelling. And, and that I say that as a Christian theologian, I think there are people who bind themselves you know, to reality. And, uh, and, and so I'll say even the argument for the right to life, that's completely compelling in right to life states. It's evidently completely lacking in compelling power uh, to those who ardently are going to support abortion. But that gets to another issue. And so you talk about natural right, and, and that's a part of a larger system of natural law. And, uh, but, but the natural uh, law argument, natural rights argument, uh, was never seriously made. Even in, for instance, the American uh, uh, tradition, say the Declaration of Independence, without acknowledging that they're not so natural, actually, they're supernatural. It's, uh, it, it's, it's nature and nature's God. Um, and, and so, and, and oddly enough, I want to fast forward and just say that as a Christian theologian and, uh, and, and uh, uh, theorist of the culture, I have to come back and say, look, uh, what we are facing right now, just to take, say, the T in LGBTQ, is it's a sign of the fact that it's not just natural law, natural right being rejected, it's nature. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, you know, I make this case, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor's wife. I, I carry my Bible around with me everywhere that I go. This is my authority, right? God's right. word is my authority, but it's not the authority of the world. And so you'll see um, that there's a perfect compliment here. There's not one drop of scripture in the book that you've got in front of you right now. Right, right. Um, but I, I didn't is, criticize that. You what? I didn't criticize that because I understand oh, what you're trying to do. Totally. No, I yeah. agree. Like I, you know, the same, the same word that says in Psalm 82, maintain the rights of the weak and needy right? It's the author of this is also the author of the natural world. And so we make a case in the book and our nonprofit is built on natural law, which is social science, the best research, the stories of kids. Um, what, what is 
rationally arrived at, right? If you're just going to talk through these issues using reason, but there's always, they're always going to complement one another because the word of God and the world of God have the same author. So yeah, there's a, like you said, you are going to find the greatest foundation for natural rights through supernatural revelation. Um, well, ultimate, I mean, I natural rights don't exist without nature, which is a created nature. So again, in, yeah. in other words, uh, I, the bigger issue, I think, is that I think you may be a good deal more optimistic than I am. I, I, I will claim the authorities of the Apostle Paul, Augustine, and John Calvin to say, uh, the problem is not that the natural law is lacking in the power to convince, but that mm. the will, uh, the, the, the will is the obstacle. There are people who will not see the truth. Uh, they, they, yeah. they, they corrupt, uh, as the Apostle Paul says uh, in, uh, in Romans chapter one, they prefer the, the, the light of the truth. But hold that for a minute. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, by the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that does not at all argue against your position or your strategy. I just want to put it in the context of the fact that uh, we could only wish that the natural law were more compelling than it is to people who are absolutely determined to have their way. Uh, well, let me just jump in and say, um, I have been tutored by uh -huh. some of... I think the best natural law thinkers tutored in the sense of I, I absorb um, the materials and appreciate their materials. Yes. People like Robert George, you know, who wrote the forward for the book and Ryan right. Anderson and right. a good friend of mine, Anna Samuel, um, like they have discipled me in some ways in natural law thinking. Um, and I appreciate it, but I don't necessarily think that natural law arguments alone are going to move the needle or change hearts. But what will is the story of kids. What will is when you see the harm that is done to the lives of children who have been willfully and intentionally denied their mother and father because of bad cultural ideas, bad legal ideas, and bad technical developments. That is when you get people to go, wait a second, this kid is Googling, trying to find who their father is every night for five years? What? That's horrible. So what we try to do in the book and in our nonprofit is we lead with story, right? That is the thing that catches people's attention. And then we follow up with hopefully what I, what I hope is a gut punch of social science and natural law. Yeah. Well, and I think it is a gut punch by the way. And uh, just about every source you've used, I've cited either in books or in lectures or, or uh, you know, conversations like this over the last several years, you are incredibly effective at pulling them together. The book is, the book has got a, a punchy style, which I think is uh is appropriate for the kind of pugilistic <laughs> uh, energy that you bring to advocacy for children and children's rights here. But in order to kind of get us into some of the issues in your book, I just want to come back to the fact that uh, speaking to listeners, uh, I just want to affirm the fact that um, even as we understand there is uh, scriptural revelation and general revelation, and uh, even as we will indict a, a sinful culture for rejecting creation order, not just, you know, they're not rejecting merely the scriptures, they're rejecting the yeah. order of creation. Uh, the fact is that I am a Reformed Protestant, a Baptist. And so I do hold, and this is where, and you mentioned Robbie George, who did write the, the forward to your book. And, and, and by the way, I've been in conversation with him in the last 24 hours. And uh, think the world of him, and uh, and mm -hmm. also Ryan Anderson. You mentioned again, who was yeah. just just recently here in conversation with us, uh, and and they are uh, they're, they're some of the most important uh, thinkers of our day, and and for good. Uh, the thing is, is that I am the Protestant in the room who has to come back and say that we believe in total depravity, which means that the intellect shows the effects of the fall as well as the will, and thus uh, 
The difference is that the Roman Catholic is always far more optimistic than the Protestant that the natural law is going to be a compelling argument to those who love their sin. And uh, so the seeking Baptist to Baptist here, uh, we understand that the, uh, the, the most fundamental issue is not the rejection of social science, uh, but the rejection of an entire moral order, uh, which, by the way, is, is, is not an indictment. The Baptists also have to come back and say, it's not an indictment of some people. It's an indictment of all people. That's the Romans' definition of what it means to be a sinner, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which, from which a rescue only is Christ. But, you know, this does mean that Christ's people are to be out making these arguments. And even mm-hmm. as Jesus said, suffer not the little ones to come unto me. Uh, we have a, 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 re- a real uh, urgency, which I think you have just really well articulated in this book, to speak up for children in certain specific issues in particular. Mm-hmm. And they just happen mm-hmm. to be like the most controversial issues of our age, right. uh, just by accident. And, Let me just and say, so, really yeah. enjoying this conversation, uh, because normally I'm the Protestant in the room. And yeah. so... I feel like I can just sit back and be like, amen, whenever you preach. Okay. This, okay. this reformation so, yeah, thing, so we, thank you. T- together, together we'll stand for it. Uh, but again, it. Uh, uh, the evangelicals and Protestants uh, often forget the fact that we believe in the natural law as much as the Roman Catholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't believe it is as compelling to sinners as they think it is. But mm-hmm. look, they're exactly right when they take uh, natural arguments into public square, which is which yeah. is what I do all the time, and that's what you're doing in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that then raises the issue of rights. Okay, so I, I heard you. So I asked you why you use the word rights, and you said because you like it. Um, so I, I I'm kidding with you here, but I, I want to press a little deeper. That's mm-hmm. not an uncontested word. So. Right. And, and, and I think you're using it not just for the, the leverage and the culture it gives you, but because there's a deep issue where rights is exactly the right word. So let me give you an opportunity to say, why is a, 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 an emphasis upon rights for children the right word? Yeah, well, I, I want to say that like you, you can see in chapter one where we sort of give a little outline of we have a three rules that make it a right test. And I am not a natural lawyer. Um, Stacy, my co-author who brought the punch, if you want credit for the punch, credit goes to Stacy, um, that we had to sift through a lot of there's not right. there is not necessarily widespread agreement, even among conservatives about some of these questions, especially as it relates to this distinct there's nothing else like the parent-child relationship. And so there's disagreement about what to even call it. It's so distinct, it's so critical, it's so unparalleled in the human experience. And so we chose to call it rights. You can find natural lawyers who disagree and want to call it something else, an obligation or a duty or a claim or whatever it is, right? So we went with with rights because to me, it, it is, it is, it is something that that is well. So we give our kind of three rules that make it a right test, right? Because you've got to measure what makes it a right these days. And we arrived at three conclusions. The first one is if it's pre-government, if it existed before the government, it's a right. Um, if everybody gets it in equal measure, right? You, it's not like um, a dorm room versus Mar-a-Lago. Right, right, Housing right. is not a right right? because the distribution changes, mm-hmm. but everyone gets one life. Everyone has the same ability to speak up and share their thoughts and argue in the public square. Everyone has the same ability or should have the same ability to defend themselves, right? A natural right is something given in equal measure. So you see, we each have one life. 
if you exist, you all have two parents. Um, and third, it's not something that anybody has to deliver to you or, or dig up from the ground and bottle it and ship it and label it and put it on a shelf, right? So it's something that just naturally exists. So those are kind of, that's our framework for determining whether or not something is a right, a natural right. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on it, but that's sort of our layperson explanation as to why this does fit in the lexicon no, it, of natural it's rights. It's good. It's good. Now, there, there's no adequate definition of rights. And I'm, I'm working on this in a, a book conception right now, but uh, uh, de definitely a, an intellectual project I'm pretty deeply into. And I would oh, well, say that at least one way. Maybe you should to, tutor me. Maybe maybe I need to like. Well, take a uh, look let, at let that. me put it this way. Uh, it is really interesting that at this time we have to have these conversations out loud, mm -hmm. whereas evangelical mm -hmm. Christians did not have to have these conversations out loud at a previous moment. And it gets to a basic issue of church history, which is um, you often have to formulate orthodox biblical Christianity into a creed after a heretic is taught something that you have to correct. And mm -hmm. so the misuse mm -hmm. of the term rights, uh, which has been endemic uh, over the course of the last, say, 70 years, it now requires us to say, no, that's not what rights are. Rights refer to this. And I would say at least a part of it is that, that, that a right is a necessary and natural expression of a function and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and of a status, uh, of a being. So in other words, rocks don't have rights. Uh, you know, Mississippi River doesn't have rights, uh, but uh, sentient creatures uh, that especially are, are humans able to, uh, to consciously uh, understand these rights, recognize them as uh, the expression uh, of a function that uh, is necessary to the being. And so the dignity of life, the sanctity of life, a right to life is, is, is essential for the, the, the function of the being. And, uh, and when we're talking about rights, you know, we, even when the, the framers of the Declaration and, the, and the, the, the American Republic came back and said, you know, uh, we hold these rights, uh, you know, granted by nature and nature's God. Well, they had specific rights uh, in mind, and those did not include the right to an equal, you know, number of bags of wheat. Uh, it was things essential to the human function, you know, like uh, speech, religion, religious expression, um, and all these things. And so um, we use the rights language knowing that it's been perverted, but we have no choice but to use it because the loss of it is a disaster. So I, I, I want to tell you, thank you for intentionally, I think very intelligently using uh, the rights language. And, uh, and, and I think I agree with your three tests. The second one is the one where we have to come back and say that, um, that for instance, Unconscious human beings still have a right to life. Mm -hmm. uh, those with profound mental disabilities may not be able to function in every way. And, and, th and that's where you get to something else you just implied. Uh, and, and that is that even when you say a, a child has a right to a mother and a father, and I, I affirm that, but there are times in which uh, that is not the case, not because of human misbehavior, but because of death. Uh, or, or something else, and in that case, the the right doesn't isn't nullified, uh, but rather the rightness of the right is amplified. And and so we live in a society that wants to say no uh, because there are exceptions to this picture. Then the exceptions are the norm. And uh, so anyway, it's 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 I think very smart tactically 
but it's complicated. And I just, I just don't want Christians to fall into the rights talk trap, uh, which you, you're thoughtful and you're avoiding here, I want to say, of just saying everything we like and want is a right. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you that the use of exceptions um, is the way that they have made pretty much every legal change when it comes to marriage and family, right? It is appealing to exceptions. And so we deal with a lot of those in the book, um, a lot of the objections, because the rule is so obvious and self-evident, right? That they have to rely on these edge cases, you know, this, oh, okay, you would rather have a baby grow up in an orphanage than with, you know, two gay parents. Or, well, what about, you know, you talk about biological parents being statistically the safest adults in a child's life. So are you saying, you know, that you would rather have a child be with their two abusive biological parents versus a single loving, you know, adoptive mother or, you know, so like they make all of their cases very similar to the pro-life world. All of their arguments are based on edge cases. And so we need to get We need to reclaim the fundamentals. We need to understand what is the rule here? First, first saturate yourself in the truth, right? Of these natural law, natural rights arguments. And then you'll be able to navigate the exceptions. But yeah, because we we aren't um, adept at wielding these statistics, we do get caught up in a lot of those exceptions. Yeah, now uh, the documentation is something you do particularly well. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, just kind of tick off a list List what you think are the enumerated, rightly understood uh, rights of a child that are currently uh, under subversion and uh, subject to denial. Oh, my. Well, well you wrote uh, the you book. Know, I, I, yeah. So the book <laughs> focuses. So there are hundreds of incredible organizations fighting for children's right to life. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Mm-hmm. And they, we deserve every one of those. Um, we now have some, I'd say that there's, I don't know where to begin, right? Because almost every policy being pushed today from lockdown COVID policy to transgenderism, it all disproportionately harms children in almost everything that we are, every policy decision that we are making today seems to prioritize what adults want above the rights and well-being right, of children. Right, right. So like you really could look at almost any issue today and say, Children are being victimized because adults are pushing something that they want and kids just are the acceptable sacrifice on the altar of that adult ideology or whatever it is. But I would say um, children have a right to innocence. Um, Like they're not just miniature adults. And so that is why you see parent groups rising up against radical and and perverse sex ed curriculums. Um, Children have a right to an unmedicalized intact body. Um, and that is why we now see detransitioners and other organizations shining the light on the horrifying medical treatments that result in chemical and surgical castration in children. Um, children have a right to their mother and father, and that's going to implicate every marriage and family issue. That's what we try to do in the book. Um, and so I do see organizations, voices that are standing up to pinpoint and recognize where children's rights are being violated um, and and push back. And in fact, I feel like that's probably one of the few unifying aspects. If I could just speak to conservatives, I would say you need to be the party of children because you because that is where you're getting that is where you're getting Glenn Youngkin elected. Right. Is because the parents are saying you are harming our children. Right. And it is creating these new voting blocks, right? You now have a voting block called parents and it's literally around the violation of children's right to innocence. So uh, I, we could go on this 
a long ways. And of course, there's a lot of debate over whether or not children have a right to innocence, but we can talk about children's rights to their mother and father and the implications that that has for marriage, divorce, same-sex parenting, transgender parents, cohabitation, polygamy, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, and adoption, right? That's what the whole the book is about, is any place where these controversial topics intersect with marriage and family, it must be children's right to their mother and father that governs these discussions. Yeah, I think one of the uh, most effective rhetorical devices you use in the book is to contrast um, them before us with us before them. And, uh, you know, I, I think that brilliantly encapsulates uh, the, the scale of moral loss uh, in our society. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know exactly where you can pinpoint that, but my honest guess is that it's somewhere in the 60s and 70s, by my own life experience, that the uh, us before them really became the determining issue. And of course, that's, it's present in the birth control uh, arguments you see uh, in the 1960s before the Supreme Court, and certainly by the time you get to Roe v. Wade. And, uh, and, and there, there, there's frankly no uh, two greater symbols of us before them than Roe v. Wade and uh, Obergefell. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, and to me, like if you want to frame it in a more of a Christian context, right? During the sexual revolution, sex became God right? Adult sexual desire, adult sexual choices, adult sexual freedom. And if sex is God, children are the obvious and necessary sacrifice, right? So that's it, right? It's us, us, our own sexual desire, sexual freedom, sexual well-being, sexual identity, sexual experiences. If that is God, and if sex makes babies, then obviously children are going to have to sacrifice for adults. So that's, I think you're right. You uh, collect an awful lot of uh, data, and uh, I'm carefully avoiding the word science, Uh, but it comes from what is called social science. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm simply going to invoke uh, the great transcendent moral authority, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Mm -hmm. and uh, his continual suggestion that we must trust the science. Mm -hmm. Why is it that when it comes to the demonstrated results of every single thing they call social science, Mm-hmm. Uh, they look at the conclusions and say, never mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's true that there has been a horrifying amount of institutional capture when it comes to um, our institutions of research. Sure. And so you are correct that we need to look very skeptically at what is coming out of the academy in, in a lot of these different areas. But there are still good scientists doing good sciencing. But um, it's and the so, Anthony Fauci's of the world. It's the left. And Anthony Fauci, I, I, I'm speaking of even how he changed his position on AIDS and uh, so-called safe sex during that crisis. And it, my point is that the left keeps saying, we are the science people. And yet, when you look at all the evidence of just the numbers of the difference between a boy growing up with a father in the home and not. And, and uh, uh, frankly, it's not just boys, although the pathologies right. show up far more with boys. Right. And then the, especially the interior uh, struggles of girls growing up without a father in the home or, right. or children without two parents in the home, those two parents right. being a mother and a father. Uh, yep. And even so, because the evidence you cite, and I want people to read your book. I want them to have mm-hmm. these arguments at hand. Yeah. yeah well, and just hold on to well. the book because the footnotes, I mean, just, just buy it for the footnotes. Like yeah. we took mountains of data, for example, on divorce, and we, we tried to select 
the highest scholarship, right? With the most far reaching um, that you could extrapolate on a population population wide basis. Um, like there are mountains of research on all these different topics. And we tried to pull only the highest level social, the trusted genuine social science for you um, because it is hard to know what where to trust and what to look to, you know, when it comes to all of these topics because they've been so highly politicized, right? So but yeah, unfortunately follow the science in social there. science often follows the money in social science. And a so we absolutely. try to- all the- all the capture, all the ideological yeah. corruption you're talking about, it's all there. But still, yeah. the Christian still, in me wants to come back and say, your own research, as much yep. as you want to deny it and ignore it, affirms the need of children for a father and a mother. The, yeah. the, the very crime reports, the, the, the education reports, the, uh, the, the psychological and, uh, and psychiatric reports that you file are reports that can be directly traced to these pre-political, family, marriage, sexuality, gender issues. Yep, that's exactly right. And especially before the same-sex marriage debate, Mm -hmm. you had five fairly widely agreed upon um, conclusions that biology mattered in the parent-child relationship, that men don't mother and women don't father and kids need both. You had pretty unanimous agreement that children suffered diminished outcomes when they lost a parent to death, divorce, abandonment. And now the best science, social science that we have, the best surveys really these days that we have on third party reproduction. It shows that whoever's raising these kids, heterosexual, homosexual pairings, group (laughs) groups, raising these kids, that if a kid loses a parent to one of those, they suffer diminished outcomes, right? So this is especially relevant when you are taking down the highly politicized studies around same-sex parenting, which was a huge part of advancing Obergefell and the arguments for gay marriage, was arguing that the kids fared no difference. So we spent quite a bit of time on chapter six, the first half, really just debunking that myth that children with two moms or two dads fare no different because it is such a damaging lie. Right. And you did a very, very good job with that. Can I point out something? And, uh, you know... I've written several books. The problem when you write a book is it's written and uh, the world keeps moving on. And, uh, and, and so, by the way, uh, argument books, and that's most of what I write too, just as you did, our argument books uh, can be confronted with subsequent data that, you know, you got you to go back and factor in. Uh, everything I know that has come out since the release of your book would basically verify and buttress the argument you're making. But you, you point to something very, very important. And uh, I, I think a lot of people looking at this stuff and, and, and they'll look at, uh, you know, all these studies supposedly showing that uh, children raised in same sex families are, are, are just are come up, have similar outcomes to those who, uh, who, who are raised in two parent uh, male female homes. No, number one, in a lot of those cases, the research is not equalized for marriage. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So, in, in other words, that that's not fair. The other thing is that uh, as conservatives, we don't deny socioeconomic factors as having an influence. We deny that they're determinative, and uh, but we don't we don't deny that it's an influence. And it just so happens that the studies that were produced for uh, the Obergefell arguments and all the rest from the pro same sex marriage side, that I mean, the people who were same sex parenting at that time happen to be, and by the way, still overwhelmingly are, especially among uh, two men who claim to be parenting you know, the child, um, 
they're overwhelmingly from the top economic strata of society. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that, that's not a fair comparison either. But it shows right. you the desperation of those making these arguments and, frankly, their cleverness. Right. Well, and even even when you well, I would say that's not the greatest problem when it comes to the methodologies used in those studies. Right. They tended to use recruited versus randomly derived participants. Um, Very often you were not surveying the actual results uh, impact on the life of the child. You were surveying how you how the parents believe their kid was doing. Right. So they'd go to the lesbian parents and say, does your kid love not having a dad? Yeah. I guess there's no difference, right? So, I mean, it absolutely, like when you think of the gold standard of the scientific method, that is not these studies. Um, so, nor has there been is, enough time. There hasn't been enough time and experience. We have millennia of, right. of evidence on the natural family. We've got, right, in human scale, seconds of time with legalized same sex marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that it goes against all it goes against the consensus of social right. science, right? Right. Social science consensus does not change in the matter of five years. And yet it strangely did when it came to the topic of same sex parenting. So, Oddly uh, yeah, you which science are you going to trust? I guess is the yeah. question. I can still remember Samuel Alito saying whatever same sex marriage is, it's more recent than the smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, just a very insightful statement that that that's how recent this is. Um, you are brave to take on some issues uh, that, uh, frankly, I've written about, talked about, and I've been in hot water about as well. Uh, your your uh, your aim at logical consistency and moral consistency, logical in the sense that you recognize that an argument against surrogate parenting is actually an argument against uh, an awful lot of IVF technology. And, uh, and yet also, I, I think consistency in your advocacy for the child uh, we now have enough data. And, and again, our first argument is not data. First argument is the, the, the creation order and natural uh, right and natural law. But uh, we now have sufficient data to understand that the uh, subversion of children's rights includes the commodification of the entire reproductive process. Right. Yep. You're brave to so, take that on. I appreciate that. Well, um, I've lost friends over it. Um, and it's tough because I like keeping my friends. But when it comes to children being harmed, there are things worth losing your friends over. Um, and the reality is that especially conservatives and especially Protestants, we haven't thought well through these issues. Um, so the premise of the book is children have rights. Children have a right to life. Children have a right to their mother and father. And the 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 benefit of that message is it doesn't discriminate. It insists that all adults make sacrifices on behalf of children. Um, The drawback is that that makes demands on all adults for the sake of children, right? And that one reason why I think traditional pro-family arguments got into some hot water um, and were not as effective as they should have been is because they were selective about to whom that message pertained. Um, they, they were out in arms in many cases um, around gay marriage because they said kids need moms and dads, but they were silent on the topic of rampant divorce or cohabitation, which numerically denies more children a right with their mother or father than same-sex parents do. Um, And I think the same can be said when it comes to reproductive technologies. I was just at a conference last week on Life After Row talking about how horrible um, the baby taking industry is back in the most recent 
numbers that we have from 2019 is about 700,000 children lost their lives to the baby taking abortion industry, but about 900,000 died that same year in the process of IVF. That this process of making babies in laboratories is not a child-friendly process. Overwhelmingly, Mm -hmm. these babies will not survive if they are made in a laboratory. And so, first of all, as people that are charged with protecting the least of these, we need to understand that IVF very often is not about babies. It's about on-demand designer discardable babies. That's really what IVF is. As many pro-lifers, Christians who have gone through those processes to make their babies have told me personally, yeah, I still have kids in a freezer and I don't know what to do. Or I tried to go into this with pro-life convictions and honestly, we couldn't afford it. Like we just had to discard some embryos or we had to create more than we were willing to use or whatever it was, right? These are not child honoring technologies. And then if you add to that, the not just the anti-life aspects of IVF, babies in glass, making babies in vitro, but then you introduce this thought of a third party, somebody else's egg, somebody else's sperm, somebody else's womb. And now not only are you putting children's right to life in jeopardy, but you are guaranteeing that they lose a right to one of the two people to whom they have a natural right, their mother or father. So we, I, this is sensitive because all of us know couples that struggle with infertility that would be incredible mothers and fathers. We desperately want them to have a baby. It can never be at the expense of children's fundamental rights and well-being. It just can't. Or the discounting of humanity. And uh, yeah, I, I too have lost friends over this. I participated in two book projects about 20 years ago on uh, IVF and uh, similar kinds of uh, modern reproductive technology. But IVF's at the center of it. And, and uh, the problem for me was that uh, I find myself completely unable uh, to uh, make the argument that human dignity and respect for life is to begin at the moment of fertilization and then shift gears when it, when it shifts from talking about how not to have a baby to how to have a baby, you know, in, in terms of uh, through IVF. And, uh, you know, what, one of the things you demonstrate in your book is this the argument we have to make over and over again, which is if we really believe that, uh, that every life begins at fertilization, in other words, that, 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 that is a baby. Uh, that is a human person. And if we really believe that, it's going to come with consequences. And, and by the way, in, in at least one state, uh, Mississippi, when a, a, a human life amendment came up, uh, the left used it saying, well, this is going to forbid IVF. Among other reasons, it failed. And I just want to go to Christians and say, listen, and again, there's another Christian principle that, uh, that we need to articulate very clearly. And that is that there are no human beings who are illegitimate. There are means of technology in their moral context that bring them into being that are illegitimate. But so if we're talking to someone and they say, well, I was conceived by IVF. Well, we are not at all discounting their humanity. We affirm it in full. Uh, But but uh, the scriptural worldview and the natural worldview understands Mm -hmm. that the there are still moral consequences uh, and and importance to even, you know, there's there's a difference between. Uh, whether uh, the, uh, the, the parents are even known or unknown, not to mention mm-hmm. the fact that when you're talking about the willful creation, you're also talking about the fact that, as you say, economics comes in. And then people say, well, you need to have multiple embryos. We're never going to transfer all those. So then eugenics comes in. 
because then you're going to select which of these embryos uh, has the greatest potential. And, you know, we are we are at that point doing exactly what we deny is in any sense morally acceptable. That's right. This is, um, you know, we we spend quite a bit of time in chapter nine contrasting adoption and big fertility because a lot of people think this is the same thing. Right. It's in both sense, the kid lost, you know, their parents, one or two, and they're being raised by non-related adults. But from a moral perspective and a children's rights perspective, these are exactly the opposite. These are exactly the opposite kinds of technology. Right. Adoption is an institution centered around the well-being of children. It is seeking to restore something that is lost. Big fertility is a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. It seeks to deliver a child product to adults, no matter the cost, to that child, to any other child. And I love what you said about how there's no illegitimate people, but there's illegitimate means. Um, And I will just say, you know, I'm not donor conceived, obviously, but I gather the stories here from a lot of kids who are. And what they often say is, when I talk about how I feel commodified, through these processes where I feel like I was, I am a designer product because I was picked out of a catalog. Um, when I talk about how desperately I long to know the identity of my biological mother, even though I was raised by a woman that I love, people will say, well, would you rather be dead? I mean, you exist because yeah. of these technologies, right? right? So wouldn't right. you rather be dead? And the answer is, I can be critical of the means of my conception and still be grateful for my life. And they will often say, just like a rape victim, right? A a product of rape would say, I'm critical of the circumstances of my conception. And I'm grateful to have my life. So that's exactly what you're saying in another way. The life is sacred. The life is precious. The means of creating that life um, is not necessarily something that you want to endorse, incentivize, and promote. Can I offer you another moral argument that I think you might find helpful? Yes. That would be the argument, uh, the principle of proximity. So um, people often say, uh, when you make arguments such as you make, well, then uh, you've got to you've got to then, you know, basically go into uh, IVF centers and defend those, you know, uh, human embryos the same way you would defend a child, you know, uh, on the street. That that is that is that is not true. That's a false setup. So we affirm the common humanity. And yes, the common dignity, and yes, the right to life of all. But uh, one moral principle is, and this is also made clear in Scripture, uh, the, the the sojourner in your midst, for example, in the Old Testament, the widow and the orphan in your midst, uh, you know, in other words, a needy child in front of us. And that really helps make the adoption issue clear too, I think. Because in adoption, you're not arranging for the child to be born. You are not ordering a child. There is a child whose proximate existence, I know someone right now in space and time and history needs to care for that child right now. And uh, so that child standing before us right now needs to be fed and clothed and cared for and loved, sheltered. Uh, I hope that makes sense. But that, that, that's another Christian argument based in scripture and in natural law that I think really helps us. Well, so I love that. And I'll let you take, I'll I'll let you make the theological argument and I'll just make the children's rights argument. And that is don't make kids sacrifice for you. That's the big idea that we have in our entire book is in any of these issues, whether you're in a struggling marriage or you have infertility or you have same sex attraction or you're single and you wish that you were married or whatever it is, the solution to your struggle cannot be 
a kid is going to sacrifice for me. And that is the big difference between um, the only the only study that we have that compares outcomes of children who have been adopted and children created through sperm donation, right? Where the sperm donor kid is being raised by their biological mother and usually another adult, um, either another woman or another man, but it's a two parent household, right? And they've got one biological parent. What we see is that adopted kids fare better when it comes to psychological outcomes, feeling like they can trust their parents, reduce levels of substance abuse and things like that. Why is that? It's because the adult that is raising them is seeking to mend their wound. They didn't inflict it, right? So there's the child in your midst, right? The sojourner among you. And you say, I see that you have a need. I'm going to step in and I'm going to care for that need versus the kid created through third party reproduction where the adult raising them inflicted the need. It insisted that the child would end up having the need to begin with. And that has a very different psychological um, impact on a child, right? This child who's been adopted can be open and honest. They can grieve, they can mourn, they can ask questions because they're not talking to the adult that decided that they would need to be adopted. Right. This child has a much harder time talking about their longing to know their biological parent or their questions about commodification or whatever it is because they are talking with the adult right. that chose to commodify them. And so I think that that, you know, the person in your midst, the one right here that you can care for versus manufacturing a child that is right. going to be in need of care is an important distinction. Yeah. You know, a uh, part of this is also rooted in pastoral ministry and in life. And, uh, and, and part of it's in my uh, role as being president of an institution uh, that has both undergraduate and graduate students and uh, an overwhelming n number of young men. And, uh, it does not take long to detect patterns, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, let's just say, I want to say it positively, the positive presence of an engaged father's life. Uh, it, it makes a huge difference. And uh, that, that's, that's something we just say to honor God uh, in understanding that God had a perfect plan. And so you deal in the book with uh, rights and biology and marriage and divorce and same-sex parents and donor conception and surrogacy and adoption. Um, I, I appreciate the specificity. Uh, I had a thought, and, and that is that I would commend this book not only to people who want to know how to better understand these issues, I think it will help people in their own families. I think it would be helpful to a lot of parents, because your principle of them before us, uh, I got to tell you, I hear among evangelical Christians, some moral silliness uh, about the rights that parents supposedly have for all kinds of things from time apart from their kids to just time with each other to us time and all this. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's always wrong. I'm just saying whatever it is, so long as you have children, they are the demand. They are the imperative. They are the priority. And uh, so I, I hope there'll be a lot of parents who will read your book, even though they hold to none of the pathologies you indicate. Yeah. Uh, well, and they're patterns. This is not about, this isn't about making children your God. This isn't mm -hmm. about saying that this is the only thing that matters in life. This is saying they sure. have fundamental rights and needs and you, the adult are to right. do the hard work so that right. those needs are met. Right. Um, and you know, I'm a mom, I got four kids. Um, sometimes I need a break, but it cannot be at the expense 
of our children's fundamental rights and needs. Right. Um, right. Thank God, you know, for a strong, engaged husband yeah. um, who helps me shoulder that load. And God bless the women that that for whatever reason don't have that um, because this is a two person job. This is not a two person right. job. This is right. a mother father job. Um, and, and kids need both. And there is a brokenness in the world. We recognize that. By the way, there's a brokenness in every one of us. There are no perfect marriages. Uh, that's a good biblical principle, but but marriage is still an undiluted good. Uh, there are no perfect parents, but that just points to how essential parents are. And uh, and, and so the, the, the Christian church, uh, based upon our understanding of every doctrine from creation eschatology, understands that um, God's plan and purpose for us was not to find or make utopia on earth, but nonetheless in a fallen world to show his glory according to the structures of creation and the laws that he's embedded in his scripture and also in nature, and to find the joy of, uh, of yes, loving each other, loving our children, uh, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, uh, seeing them launched and ultimately taking satisfaction in our children becoming parents. And, uh, you know, uh, the sociologists and historians would quickly say that a society that doesn't do that, I think of, uh, of, of some of the foundational works of sociology uh, in the early 20th century, in which they said, you know, it's very easy. Civilizations that accomplish these things survive, and those that don't fail. Yeah. Um, odd how that happens, huh? Yeah. Well, and I would say um, those those simple things, and now speaking as a pastor's wife in Seattle, um, yeah. You know, which really is like when I need to know what to do, I read Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah has all the words that I need to know yeah, <laughs> to yeah, like direct yeah. my steps. And what I love is because we really are, I mean, a remnant, everybody that lived in Seattle that was just here to like have a nice life and make money has moved to Idaho. Um, and so like it's all, all that's left is the remnant. And so, you know, I read Jeremiah and what it is that we can do um, is we can get married build houses, plant gardens, raise children, help them get married, build houses, have children. I mean, and actually those simple things here in Seattle, that is the most counter-cultural thing that you can do right now, right? Is do these small things um, to create your own mini society that is gonna honor the Lord and then replicate itself. So yeah. And and so I would say that remnants that do that, not even all, all societies, but remnants that do that will survive. Yes, very well said. And you know, other things survive. And this is just a testimony to the goodness of God. So even in Seattle, even in radically leftist, progressivist, West Coast, Seattle, uh, even in just about any part of the world you go to, but I'm thinking even of the liberal enclaves. Uh, I will see a parent walking along with a child. I will see them get to where they have to cross traffic. And I see that little child's hand go up and the parent's hand come down. And I think, God did that. And there are still vestiges of uh, the glory of God in creation um, in Seattle, yep. in Louisville, and yeah. everywhere where we had the chance to see it. And there are still arguments to be made and children. Mm -hmm to be protected and defended. And uh, that ought to keep us busy, huh? Yeah, it certainly will. I just want to thank you for writing this book. I want to thank you for uh, for sharing your own story and uh, for the passion and uh, the obvious care for children 
uh, that you bring uh, to these arguments. I have one final question for you. Uh, roughly two years after you must have finished this manuscript, and because that books take a while to come out, um, what has happened that you would put in a new edition of this book? Well, all of the reproductive technologies are still going and getting worse. Uh, you know, we now have things like artificial wombs and robot nannies that are being developed in China. So we got to get that figured out. But probably in the legal realm, polygamy, right? The family redefinition train didn't stop and pull into the station with same-sex marriage. It is rolling on. And now we are going to look at the expansion of the definition of marriage to group marriages. That's absolutely, I mean, and there really is no legal argument to be made against it. If we have um, the premise that marriage is just about with whom you share love and connection, because, um, you know, two men can have love and connection and three men or four men and some women can have love and connection. So yeah, that's what's next in terms of the new front on the family redefinition train. Um, but other than that, everything else that is in the book, it's not going to go away. The definition of marriage, the impact of divorce, the rise and promotion of same-sex parenting, reproductive technologies, these are not going away. But I think in the next few years and decades, what we are going to see is a chorus of children who have been harmed by these legal and technological developments rise up and say, you starved me. You denied me. You denied the right that I had to be known and right. loved by the two people responsible for my existence. So um, I do think that that this isn't over. Right. Natural law is going to make itself known. And I think it's going to make itself known through the testimonies of kids. Yeah, very well said. And uh, I, I predict the same, by the way, uh, that uh, polyamory, as it's known in the larger sense, uh, w without even reference to marriage in some cases, uh, is definitely the coming thing. And it struck me the other day as I was speaking about this, that a part of the way the left works or a moral rebellion works is that you have to continually broaden the constituency. And, and so it's not just L, it's LGBTQ and then plus sign, whatever's coming. I, it just struck me, the thing about polyamory, you kind of immediately multiply your constituency. Because that's not LGBT or whatever. Conceivably, that could be anyone, any place at any time for any duration, you know. And so uh, in some ways, that's the ultimate uh, annihilation uh, of marriage and the family. But, well, and uh, hey, you do have activists who say, we're here to abolish marriage. We sure, don't want to redefine sure. it. We want to right. abolish marriage. And that's marriage. effectively so, what it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. Well, I want to thank you for writing this book. I want to thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, the book is entitled Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And uh, Katie, it's been a delight to have you on the program. I want to thank you for your work and uh, God bless your work and God bless the children. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for standing firm. Thanks for just shining a light on this issue. Many thanks to my guest, Katie Faust, for joining with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. Keep thinking.